From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm Tony Epstein. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. And the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. The time has come to go out of your mind. Are you ready? There is nothing wrong with your television set. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Thank you very much. I'm very happy to welcome Jahan Kamsavzadeh back to the show. Jahan trained in the Mazatec mushroom tradition. He facilitates legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies in Jamaica and educates people to develop a relationship with sacred mushrooms. And he's the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet, an Integral Approach. I just finished listening to our last interview, and it was amazing. Yeah, it was the first one I did in this round of spree, and I've been doing one or three a week, and I was very happy with that one. That's why I was very glad that you reached out again so we can have another go. Yeah, so I thought that I would start by asking you if there were any particular things that you would particularly like to explore mm -hmm. or go into greater depth into. Let me that. Because I have some things that... Please that do, yeah. I, I'm happy to follow your lead. Uh, for me, that's interesting because it arises out of this dynamic. You know, your consciousness pulls something very particular for mine, and I, I prefer that forward uh -huh. motion. Okay, yeah, I can totally relate to that. So I would actually love to hear more about your Mazatec training in Oaxaca mm -hmm. and also how it informs the way you do the work that you're doing now guiding people with psilocybin and, and to go into 
much greater depth into that because we didn't really go into that in our last conversation. Yeah, um, happy to start there. So in 2018, I went with Francois Borzat. Uh, there's a group of 12 of us that went to Mexico to work with the Mazatecs there. She had been part of that lineage close for about 30 years now. Um, she came from France and met her husband, Aharon, and they started doing medicine work here in the U.S., but then they started cultivating a relationship with the Mazatecs. And for those that don't know, the Mazatecs is the main group of people for which we actually, as, as the Western culture, acquired the wisdom and awareness of psilocybin mushrooms. So in uh, 1955, Gordon Wasson, he was a J.P. Morgan vice president, so a banker from the East Coast, but was very interested in mushrooms and how they relate to societies, uh, found out that there was a mushroom tribe in Mexico that actually used mushrooms for religious ceremonies. So this deeply interested in him, and he spent a couple years trying to find a contact to go down there Huatla de Jimenez, the main capital of the Mazatecs, is in a very remote region up in the Sierra Madras uh, in the Oaxaca Mountains. And so it was a while to go out to get there in 1955, and he went with a photographer. And after trying to talk to a few people there, the curandera Maria Sabina allowed him to come into the ceremony. And he was the first Westerner, as far as we know, for more of a modern-day context, that participated in taking psilocybin mushrooms, especially consciously, because they exist everywhere and people might have accidentally taken them in the past. But this is a very nice written account of, of that experience. And he had a life transformative experience. In 1957, he published his account in Life magazine. And so that was the first time psychedelics came to mainstream culture. LSD had been around before that, but it was just written in scientific articles. And it was more kind of for the aristocrat kind of society with scientists, artists, engineers in the background uh, writing about it. But it didn't make public news. So after this made public news, there's widespread you know, psilocybin knowledge, including Timothy Leary read the article and went down and tried them in Mexico. And he said, I learned more in the 15 minutes coming down from my psilocybin ceremony than I did studying psychology for 15 years in upper education. And at this time, he was leading studies in Harvard. I believe he was the director of psychology there at the time. So there's a big background of how the Mazatecs played a role with Western culture. At that time, the 1960s took off and there's a large countercultural wave after this article came out and people started playing with psychedelics and a lot of the hippies went down to Oaxaca, specifically Huatla de Caminez, to go find Maria Sabina. And at any moment, there was about 70, you could say hippies, but uh, people from all cross cultures, including Europe, looking for this experience. A lot of them went as a pilgrimage to have a spiritual experience, but there was a lot of thrill seekers at the time looking for a high they kind of trashed a lot of the town and the village at the time got really upset, especially with Maria Sabina, saying she had desecrated their culture. And so they ended up burning down her house. And so there's been a lot of, say, at that time, a lot of upsetness with the Western world kind of coming into that culture. Since that time, now looking at maybe the early 70s, a lot had changed. And by the early 80s, uh, she had become kind of bitter because she had lost a lot, including her son had been murdered. But she did decide to give the remaining years of her life to training people, including Westerners, how to use psilocybin mushrooms. The culture's come a long way since then, including our culture. Maybe partly because there had been, how many years is that? Almost 50 years of repression of scientific 
exploration into psychedelics, a lot of the cultural interests had been lost. So people stopped going to Huatla de Jimenez to go look for mushrooms. It no longer became a part of the public attention. And since then, I think there's a lot of healing that's been done because now when since I went over there, they were very celebratory and happy that people were coming to see their culture. So there's a major shift because they weren't being overloaded. This isn't the first time they're coming in contact with the Western world and being overwhelmed. Now they're very proud. And Marie Sabine, who at the time had a difficult time in you know, the 1970s, she's almost taken the role of a saint there. And so you have murals of her everywhere as soon as you enter the city center of Huatla de Jimenez. There's about a 12-foot statue of a mushroom with about maybe a 7-foot statue of Maria Sabine on top of it. So this is huge sculpture with her welcoming you into the city. The city's named Pueblo Magico, which means magical village, you know, as a kind of a nickname. You go to the city center, there's about 12 mushroom murals. Uh, there's little mushrooms on the cop cars. And so it's, it's become very celebrated. And there's a museum for Marie Sabina now. We went to go visit her grave. So this is a, just a little bit of background about their culture. And our time there was amazing. It was very sweet. Again, we, I went with people that was very focused in studying this lineage. And, you know, something special about Francois Barzat, uh, you know, there's a lot that's come up with her in the last few months because of some articles. But she really helped tie and make a deep relationship between the Western culture and that culture. You know, she had been going a few times a year for about three decades, and it was nice to, as we walked around the city town, she knew so many of the locals. Not just the place we stayed, but she saw them as family, and they treated her as family. And the family we stayed in, they had been in, we, we call it a sh shamanic lineage, and just to play this a little bit background on the word shaman, it's a Siberian word. You know, that's what the Europeans end up calling some of the Siberian shamans, people that played with medicine. But over there, they call them more like curanderas, which is like curers. Um, and I'm okay using the word shaman um, because we need a kind of a placeholder for people that play this uh, medicine role or this intermediary between the spirit world and the human world in, in culture because this role exists in all indigenous societies. And if you go back into the human past, you know, anthropologists would say it's the earliest religion of all humanity. So we stayed in a family, uh, I believe it was five women and two men, all sisters and brothers that this has been part of their heritage for many generations. And each of the women play the shamanic role, most of them with mushrooms, but one of them focuses on salvia divinorum. For those that aren't aware, salvia is a very potent psychedelic that only grows in that region. I tried it a few times as a teen, and it's kind of can be this experience of moving into another dimension. And, and I don't mean that lightly. I mean, it's filled and inhabited many times with other entities. The first time I did it, like a lady made out of plants walked out and started talking to me. So it's a very potent compound and it can be very frightening and uneasy, but again, a, quite a strong catalyst. While we were there, we participated in three mushroom rituals and a salvia de norm experience. And we had already had years of interest in this. So that's, that's part of the re requirement to go that we could handle our own. We've done so much self work that given the context and the ceremony, we could guide ourselves without not necessarily a lot of support. Because I think for a lot of people that want to enter in this medicine space, I think having a lot of support, especially a one-to-one -one guide ratio between one guide to one participant is amazing. But if that's not possible, at least at the most, probably four participants to one guide. Here, again, it was a context that we can actually take a good amount of mushrooms and go a lot deeper. I felt they were very humble people, smaller in stature, you know, thinner, and they've 
seem to live very well in harmony with their society and their environment. You know, I think Francois, because she had described them as they're also very shy and reserved. So a little bit more introverted, but very nice once you start to connecting. But they'll smile with you, but they will probably won't come up to you. Again, like we're we're coming in generally much taller, much more vivid colors in our clothing and so on. So it could be a lot for their system, but they seem generally very happy to start creating connections. Yeah, so I mean, all I could say is, is is amazing there. And it's nice to be in contact with this lineage. So a little bit more background, they see themselves as, say, descendants of the Mayans. And so the Mayans going back thousands of years. You know, we have about, I believe, 200 mushroom stone relics left from the Mayans dating back all the way to probably 2000 BCE, right? So there are an extension of a lineage of mushroom use in the Americas going back thousands of years. People came to the Americas about 20,000 years ago. So it's hard to see when the mushroom use started. You know, I argue in my book it started at the beginning of human evolution. But they are kind of kept this candle of light alive. And it's eventually from that candle that we got, you know, this flame that's moving now through society, moving towards legalization. Mm-hmm. So now take us into your actual training and who you were working with. Because I interviewed Françoise Bourzat probably about three years ago when her book came out, Consciousness Medicine. And she talked about her experience with Julieta Casimiro. Correct. Yeah. So I would love to hear about your experience there and the kind of training that you went through and also how that has translated into the work you do. Mm-hmm. Good question. The honest response is because the circumstances in society now and the stigma around psychedelics, I don't feel I'm at liberty to discuss the training in detail. You know, that's something that I would have to talk with Francois and her husband about before I really kind of disclosed. And it's not that there shouldn't be transparency. It's just that because the nature of where we are right now in terms of most of society holding this work, I I don't feel at liberty to talk about it too much. But I'm happy to, you know, share as much as I'm comfortable with. And maybe in a later interview, once I talk to Francois and see what's because it's her training how much she's okay revealing. They created this during the 80s and the 90s. They've been teaching for decades. And so at a time they created it, it had to be kept generally secret for it to survive. But what I can say about it is just to get into the training, there was a pretty high bar. Most people had a master's or doctorate and you either had to be a therapist already, so well-trained, or go through two years of Hakomi, which is a somatic psychotherapy training. So again, it's like you, you people came in with quite a skill level, had to have a good amount of experience with psychedelics, had to be working with guides, and on top of that, having trained in holding space just to get through the door. But the ways it impacted me is it felt nice to be connected to a lineage, right? Not just from the Mazatex, but you know, we're in a point of society right now where there's so many psychedelic trainings arising. Almost a week doesn't go by where I don't hear about a new psychedelic training. And I was at CIS when they started the first above-ground psychedelic certificate training, which is is amazing. They were able to pull in the main researchers from around the world, and and I helped in that training for two years. But it was nice to see them kind of pioneer that, and then slowly, because for several years they were still the first above-ground legal training, and now as psychedelics has gained more acceptance in society, there's people from everywhere rushing in. 
and for many variety of reasons. Some are just deep therapists that are finally hearing about it and, and they want to help people. And then there's a lot of, you could say, venture capitalists, a lot of people that are trying to find their place in the world that want to play a role that have been impacted by psychedelics. And yes, there's, I think, a few amount of people. They're not the majority of people, but I think they get a lot of attention that are coming specifically for money and interest. And so for me at the time, it was amazing to be a part of a deep community. And I think there is a big difference between doing this work, having gone through a training and not. Transparently, it wasn't so much that I learned a lot of specific things from the training. I had, for my dissertation, I read 75 books on psychedelics. Psychedelics have been a part of my life for two decades. I've been doing self-work for a long time. So there were small key things I learned, including like the importance of having prep sessions, like two prep sessions, the medicine experience, integration sessions, and how to hold it. But more of it was connecting with other like-minded people and, and going through the actual routines of having gone through experiences of holding space and having space held for you. So the difference is this makes it embodied. It's no longer theoretical in your mind. You have hands ground experience. You know, it'd be the difference between like learning how to do surgeries from reading it from a book or just talks versus actually practicing going through doing surgeries as a doctor, right? And so the contrast between this training and most of the other ones, aside from that these people holding space had decades of experience in this with most people holding, creating trainings have nowhere near that, is that it was hands-on practice, right? We were actually working with the medicine. And so a lot of the other people going through trainings right now because of legality, you know, we're able to go to Mexico and practice and do so on. And, and there's other ways that we've, we had practice also. The people that are getting trained within the U.S., they can't take medicine. And so you're just kind of just listening to people talk, you know, listening to presentations, sometimes doing like little diet exercises or holotropic breath work. But at the end of these trainings, almost none of them are really ready to start doing the medicine work and holding space. And it was nice to have a deep sense of community, meaning there's a lot of colleagues that you can ask questions with to help each other on this path, to help each other grow. So you're not a satellite doing this work. We constantly had like supervision circles, you know, so we constantly were able to give feedback, share where struggles were, get responses. It felt, I felt very lucky and very privileged, not privileged in the sense that I had a whole bunch of money, but privileged that I was able to find this network. You know, as far as we can tell, there's had been no training like they had put together any like this anywhere else in the world. You know, maybe indigenous traditions had it for their cultures, but they had structured a really beautiful, very comprehensive training, far more comprehensive than I see most of other trainings. This their training took a few years. So it's impacted me greatly. You know, I feel very lucky to have gone through that experience. So I would love to go more into the way you bring that training that you've had and your own personal experience into the way you sit with and guide the people who come to you. And you had asked earlier about my background. Many years ago, I was living in a community where we were all doing intensive meditation work, a lot of wet and dry rebirthing and other forms of breath work and primal therapy, and also at the same time doing our own personal, mostly individual experience with psychedelics of various sorts from uh, LSD, MDA, peyote, psilocybin, you know, whatever we could get our paws on. (laughs) It was all in this great experience of self-exploration. 
So again, getting back to your experience when you're actually sitting with and and guiding and working with people like in your mushroom ceremonies that you do in Jamaica. Yeah, totally. No, thank you. You know, it's kind of I've done a lot of other trainings and works besides from Francois that I think had a, a deep impact on my orientation towards this. Just for a little bit of background, so you know, I got my doctorate at CIS, but while I was there, I was also a student worker in the public programs department, and that gave me freedom to take every workshop I wanted and get paid. And so for three years, I just took every workshop that came across CIS for the public that looked like I could learn from. For four years, I was in Diamond Heart, a school put together by A.H. Almas that kind of wed Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. And, you know, I'd mentioned Hakomi. I learned a lot through there, but an orientation that really stuck with me was this training that one of the founders of Hakomi put together. His name was John Eisman. He's definitely one of the most brilliant men I've ever seen when it comes to consciousness and development and how to hold space. And it was like a rare person. I mean, I've, I've gone through so many, seen so many people talk about development and consciousness, and he really stands out. And he said after 20 years of teaching Hakomi, and he's the one that actually broke Hakomi down into a method, he found that there was a shortcut. And he created this training called the recreation of the self. You know, and I went and, and took his training. And what he found is so much of psychology and therapy is there to really, as Jung would say, individuation, but to create a more solid and deeper sense of self. And, you know, this also resonates with so much of the other work I had come across. You know, probably my favorite developmental theorist had been Ken Wilber. I've read a dozen of his books. And he shares that after looking at hundreds of models of development and how consciousness changes through paradigms, it's the change in identity that really matters. And people move from a sense of egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. And I'm happy to describe those more in detail. So when I'm holding space, I'm here to really hold space for the change of their sense of self. Because once that sense of self changes, everything else changes. All their relationships change, including their relationship to their self, and also the way they see the world changes. So it's magnificent. I mean, within a few hours, as they move deeper in contact, that deeper sense of self, many times years of struggle, sometimes decades of struggle, squashes away in minutes or hours. Sometimes I think I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than be seeing. It's like seeing, in many ways, I'll use the metaphor of seeing like, like a caterpillar turn into a butterfly, you know? What I can share is majority of people come in for depression, maybe 70%. And depression is a wounded sense of self. I'm not enough. I don't like myself, right? And so and there's a lot of internal dialogue and judgment that goes with it. So if you're forced to be a being and a personality that you don't like, life, including every moment to moment, is inherently painful and depressing. And I'll use kind of you know, the model that we have this inner child, this little kind of inner part that's innocent and nice and precious and so on. And we're kind of born with this part. And it's as if you have this little child inside and you're kind of verbally abusing it all the time. So, of course, it's dampened and depressed. And so as their sense of self can radically shift within minutes sometimes, sometimes hours, and they kind of wash away that illusion of who they thought they were, the social construct that they a lot of times integrated from their parents or society, or just like a lot of just internal dialogue that went unchecked. As it washes away, something I think, I would say more eternal, but something more substantial emerges that I think is universal, and that's we have these deep qualities of what the self is. And so in this work, the recreation of the self, 
the way he saw it, John Eisman, he's deeply influenced by Buddhism and a lot of other meditative practices, was that we're always moving into different states of consciousness throughout the day, including a lot of trance states. But underneath all these illusions and these trances, there is a solid sense of self, and it has a lot of qualities that we all share. A sense of wholeness, a sense of preciousness, a sense of love, a sense of presence. Uh, this also deeply resonated with all my diamond heart work, that there's, there's soul qualities. And these are parts of you that once you touch them, you're like, this is me. I feel more me right now than at other times in my life or other times throughout the days. And so there's a sense of recognition in your being when you're contacting something deeper inside of you. And so many times people are lost in this illusion of who they are for so long. And yet, even though that's the case, when that washes away and they contact, you could say their heart, their deeper feelings, their, their deeper emotional truths. There's a sense of vitality and vibrancy that emerges, a sense of recognition of who they are. And so, so much of my work is to help them move into those states and stabilize those states. You know, a metaphor I like to use, because I think it's nowhere near conventional awareness, the same way we have similar anatomies in all our human bodies. You know, our hearts are in a similar place, in, in our lungs, and our stomach, and they all work together very similarly throughout human bodies. And this allows doctors to do surgeries without ever seeing your particular body before, because there's a particular configuration of our anatomy. Very similarly, I see that our psychic structures, the development of our psychological parts, are also very similar, you know, coming from an integral approach that there's a sense of coherence between the external physical world and the internal world of consciousness. They, they, they evolve together, right? So one's almost a mere representation of the other, even though they're, they're very kind of different ontologically. And this isn't to say there aren't anomalies and abnormalities. For example, there's mutations in human bodies where there's people that are born with four arms or born as hermaphrodites, right? So there's physiological mutations that exist, but they're very rare, but they do exist. And so there's also mutations when it comes to the psyche, right? There's abnormal psychology. People can get wounded really early developmentally and also become either narcissists or have a borderline disorder or bipolar, you know, or schizophrenia. So there's parts that don't follow the general pattern, but for most of humanity, there's a general pattern to, to our psychic structures. And so this really kind of allows me to really see that within the self, we all have similar parts. So I'm there to contact, you know, who they are, their hearts, get them more in touch with their true identity that changes everything. And the other big model that has been deeply influential for me, I learned of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy at needs at 18. And I remember learning that day in class, and this course was called God, Mind, and Matter. Why wasn't I taught this in elementary you know, we had this very well-designed model that came out of you know, decades of research that all of humanity moves through this, you could say, hierarchy or pyramid of motivations, first starting with the needing a sense of safety, then belonging, security, then love and connection, then self-esteem, then self-actualization, and then later, Maslow, before he died, revised the model to include self-transcendence at the end, the, the wanting to help others. And I, after two decades, I find this model still spot on. And so I also, my part is to engage when clients, where they are in the model, it's not that you can't move ahead, but they might be lacking in certain areas. And so you can also see in this model, there's this emotional development. At the bottom, you have fear because it's around safety and security and trying to keep a sense of self-preservation. And at the top, you have love, which is self-transcendence, which is I'm here to help other people. So self-actualization is 
right before self-transcendence is I've actualized my identity. I know who I am. It's solid now. I've gotten enough self-esteem. So that caterpillar now turns into the butterfly and it's able to actualize and kind of create the state of metamorphosis and transform into a new sense of self. And from that space, it's able to really more give its life over to a sense of service. So there's a kind of emotional spectrum that moves up. And so my part is also to gauge where they're at and help them move forward to the next stage in completely acceptance, wherever that might be. So when working with a client, I know I have to first address any fear or safety they have. Paramount. That's There's no skipping that. So if the person doesn't feel safe, that's where we're at. And so because that's kind of so deeply ingrained in my being, for better or worse, it's very easy for me. And I think that comes from living generally a life of integrity and trying to create, I'm vegan, I try to create almost no harm as possible. And so my whole orientation is to kind of create a sense of safety. And so that happens pretty good. And then you want to create connection with the clients, something I think Hakomi does really well, but kind of mirror back or point back that they are loved, that they are okay, that they are worthy, that they are enough, you know, self-esteem's part. And as it kind of move into the, these deeper states, something can coalesce together that a lot of these things I shared start becoming self-evident to them. That of course they belong. That of course they are loved. That of course they are powerful. You know, and so, so they take that into their lives. I mean, half the time lives change in one journey. It's not a guarantee by any experience, but to have something work that radically so quickly, I, I see no other method coming close to that. Yeah, so it's a little bit background about how uh, my orientation of holding space. That's really beautiful. Yes, you were talking about that, uh, of course, reflecting on all sorts of things. But I, I love the depth and that approach towards supporting other people in their own deep dive into their own psycho-spiritual work and facilitating that in such a powerful way. And I also reflected on the system of the tarot, which mm -hmm. is another one of those metaphorical ways of mapping the human journey toward individuation and maturity. And it was also interesting that you talked about your training in Diamond Heart work with Almas, who was actually a student of our teacher in that community that I was involved in many years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's so many intersections here, but uh, we won't go down that road. <laughs> um, so. One of the things that I wanted to explore was the practical unfolding of this deep kind of and high level of, of individuation and self-recognition of being a whole being and belonging and being in, an integral part of this greater whole that we are a part of. And so the practical unfolding of it is what, what I might call a psychedelic informed society might look like and how people who are awakening to who they most holistically are would engage in our, let's say, our physical world that is also not at all separate from our greater spiritual nature, multidimensional nature of, of the world and reality and the universe. I think it's a great question, and it's, um, it's definitely you know a complex, layered answer. The first one that comes to mind is there's a few really good models of development that have come forward, including the integral model. And many people had worked on integral philosophy. You know, a few stand out is Jean Gebser, who was a huge theorist, I believe, in the 1950s. 
And he said the integral stage of consciousness comes when humanity integrates all the previous stages of consciousness. Before that, humans are just developmenting from one worldview to another, but kind of having an amnesis or a sense of forgetting amnesia of what had happened before. You know, looking back historically, we've gone through so many different ways that we've seen the world. And the integral happens when we kind of integrate all of them into this totality. And so integral theory also by Ken Wilber and Spiral Dynamics, they kind of also have these many stages of development. And part of the integral stage is also seeing that we evolve. And when we see that we evolve personally and collectively, we are able to integrate the entire past, right? So in terms of from a scientific perspective, that we are part of a very large lineage of moving from cells, you know, all the way to fish and amphibians and reptiles, eventually mammals and us. So there's a large line of life that we're carrying forward. In terms of within the human development, what I see a lot of these models have left out in Wilbur's and in Gene Gepser's, and, and it's not that any fault of their own, there's only so much you could do during a lifetime, is that they didn't really integrate that deeply the shamanic stage, and they, they discuss it because we know it's a part of our history. And specifically, these cultural tribal indigenous tribes held the point of view that we would call animism. And animism is this perspective that everything is alive, right? There's a sense of spirit and consciousness running through all of matter and of nature. And you're always having a dialogue with the environment. And, you know, we see that in more the indigenous traditions here in the U.S. We're more connected to that, you know, all the animals are our sisters and our brothers. And we take her in the environment and, you know, you can have, have this kind of like father, son, or mother, moon. And so this kind of, you have a relationship with all the other parts of reality. And, you know, I would definitely argue that so much of this experience actually probably first came from experiences with psychedelics because there's compounds in the environment and in almost every ecosystem that create these expanded states that kind of awaken us into this experience that all of reality is alive and imbued with consciousness. And it's, it's quite a quite a different orientation on the world you know I, my first big breakthrough was at 18 and after a few hours I, I never became the same again because once you really see that we are internally and externally really interconnected there could be many states of synchronicity you know carl jung really kind of to coin the word he said when there's this meaningful coincidence you could say or entanglement of our inner experience of feelings and thoughts and insights with what's happening in the external world in that very moment with a deep sense of meaning that they're tied together with meaning uh, examples like you've been thinking about somebody they haven't thought about in a long time and the next thing you know a few minutes later they call right so this kind of comes from using kind of the physics metaphor of entanglement where two particles can be entangled non-locally and still transfer information I think this kind of worldview really kind of comes from the state that ultimately we are all one consciousness. And this isn't a new idea. I think this is one of the oldest ideas within humanity. I think our ancestors had this experience over and over, maybe for hundreds of thousands of years before moving into agricultural civilizations. But you see in all the lot of the wisdom traditions in the world and sense of um, the Hindus have a very similar perspective. You know, people have dedicated themselves to meditation for thousands of years. That the large picture is of this being called Brahman who's having this dream. He's the characters in all the dreams, and we are those characters. And that individual self in each person is called Atman, but they're all united. You know, it's all this huge cosmic play. And I think it's a pretty good spot on metaphor. And so these psychedelics allow us to have that experience as part of our original humanity's history that we've lost in touch with you know we could see the huge contrast within our more materialistic reductionistic 
it's a capitalistic world where matter is inert. It's almost dead. They're just things. And from this perspective, kind of paradigm that's prevalent in our culture, the point of life, simply because everything is just things not imbued with consciousness or meaning, the point of life just seems to be to accumulate more things, including then just numbers in your bank statement, right? Just more wealth. And that's where people's self-esteem generally comes from. I have all these things and I've earned a lot of money. So that's my sense of self because that's a relationship to the rest of the world, right? There, there's a lack of depth that happened. And I've seen that sometimes change just overnight. Once you see that we're all connected and we're all imbued with this consciousness, there's much more focus for a deeper sense of meaning. Generally, if we are all one, there's more meaning satisfaction that comes through helping other people. That, And I'm not saying that to take anybody to an extent of self-abandoning because you also really matter. You just you include yourself in that picture. So as society moves into this focus and who knows how long it'll take but i think it's it's our ultimate trajectory you know where we're all kind of aligned with living in this living world that's deeply interconnected that science has found over and over and over again it creates what you can call like a high synergy society there's a great book called the uh, the global brain awakens it was first put on the 80s and 90s that kind of discussed of that too but you see it in the celestine prophecy james redfield wrote you see it in a lot it's just so many books over and over in the last few decades, I think a lot of people that were kind of first became aware of these realities through psychedelics. And you see it a lot in Burning Man, really. These states of just high levels of synchronicity and coordination that happen psychically. Terence McKenna, an amazing psychedelic philosopher, almost brilliant minds I've ever come across, he says that the two poles of reality is habit and novelty. And so habit wants to keep everything the same, the same patterns, the same structures. And you can do that socially as people keeping the same, you know, conservative kind of mentality of keeping everything the same or going backwards. And But novelty is always just barely winning. And that's why we have evolution, things move forward. But he said, as we're moving forward, and you can see it happening day to day today, novelty begins accelerating at quite an increasing pace. So because our systems are becoming more complex within society and ourselves, there's more connections being made and more newness is coming into us. And so he said, we're going to be coming to a time where the acceleration of novelty is increasing so much that it destabilizes the world. And everybody's like, what is going on? This world is just going crazy. You know, we can see what's happening with the Trump presidency that shocked a lot of people, then all the way from coronavirus and just thing after thing after thing after thing. And the whole point, it seems, is to, it shocks us awake. That reality isn't what we thought it was. And that eventually maybe this could lead us to a whole new level of awakening, seeing that we are deeply interconnected, that ultimately love matters. And so I think we're going through this death rebirth process. But on the other side, I think we'll eventually stabilize. In system series, there's a bifurcation point. Either the system breaks down or organizes at a higher level and it creates a new state of homeostasis. We'll eventually stabilize at a higher level of awareness. And I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know if I'll be alive that'll happen in time but i'm putting my energy day to day helping us move in that direction mm -hmm. and also there's this notion that this material physical world that we live in is an arena for all of us to go through all of the the processing and machinations of our process of maturation including all of our dysfunctions and and working with our traumas, unraveling all that stuff. And at the same time, of course, bouncing off of each other continually in, in all these highly complex ways. And the notion that perhaps this world is not about the resolution of all of these things, but really a playing ground in which we can ultimately learn the higher lessons 
of love and unity and who we really are and that what's happening in this world isn't the be all end all of everything. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I was also thinking before you said the word that, you know, the metaphor of this being a very large playground is, is more accurate than I think a lot of the metaphors that we hold. It's a good book called Metaphors We Live By that really kind of breaks down that metaphors are underlying all our thinking all the time. So it's nice to be conscious that underneath our thinking, there's a subconscious image that we're holding. And I think for a lot of people, so many of us have this metaphor of life being like a battlefield of good versus evil. And every day is a struggle. I mean, you have all these military armies and nations against each other. And so there's this kind of duality approach of us versus them and everybody's being pit against each other. And then you try to, you know, so much then it's just to try to dominate that's one perspective of reality and it's very exhausting and painful and and causes a lot of suffering. And that's so different than this is the playground. You know, I shared last time that I had this huge experience at 18 and and I keep pointing to it because so much of what I know that's become so important was, came through just one actual experience. I've had maybe 400 psychedelic journeys and that one really kind of just set the stage for everything else. You know, and this being entity, you know, my experience was God, it was just this unitive consciousness. So that love is the most important thing in life by far. Miles after that is learning and every other quality and value compared to those is so insignificant that you will never have to worry about anything else other than these two qualities in that order. And I think those two qualities fit very well with what you shared that so much of this time here on earth is connecting with other people, having these dynamic experiences, learning and growing. And it's about the process, not necessarily the resolution. And uh, Alan Watts, who probably a lot of listeners are familiar with, is an amazing, entertaining intellectual that really kind of helped bring Eastern philosophy to the West. You know, he has these metaphors where life is more like a dance or, or, or a piece of music because we're kind of kept in this idea that the point of life is to succeed and win if you keep working and working and working really hard eventually you can get this prize at the end and you can go spend decades you know through school and business and eventually you're going to get the prize that makes all that working and really hard work all worth it you know and i spent a lot of time exhausting myself in that and i think a lot of people did too while he says the more accurate metaphor is of like a dance right because the point of the dance isn't to get to the other side of the room that would be absolutely silly the point of the dance is to enjoy the movement while it's happening or while you're listening to a song the point of listening to a song isn't to get to the end of the song you know you just start the song and then end the song it's to experience the whole ride and i think that's what this moment to moment experience is especially our relationships i think that's why we have eight billion beings on the planet is to connect with each other and to learn from each other and almost as if we're different compounds and chemicals and so when we interact with different people there's these different chemical reactions that take place within us and between us and they change us and so from this point of view as you shared the whole point isn't to have a resolution you know i think it's a little bit more to learn and to grow and learn to love more deeply and open up our hearts I love the dance metaphor because I was also thinking that, you know, the great joy of being alive is to experience that dance, but not just any particular dance, but the continual unfolding of, of new steps, new dances and new experiences, new possibilities, new, new creative iterations that are continually unfolding as our greater universe is continually unfolding and the, the magical dynamics of that ever expanding 
possibility and potentiality of experience. That's well said. I don't know if there's anything I enjoy more than this life than dancing on LSD or just other psychedelics. And I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I just, they are the experiences for some reason that really stand out to me. I'm not sharing that there's amazing other experiences. I mean, spending deep quality time with a lover is also really, really, really high up there. But something happens for me when I physically dance on compounds, especially if I'm dancing for hours at a time. There's a sense of surrendering and letting go and trusting whatever flow or energy is moving through. And then my body, being in the city of just flow, starts doing really complex movements that I otherwise wouldn't have come in contact with. And they change me in terms of there's more power, there's more confidence, there's more ease, there's more like, wow, wow, like I'm being astounded by this own show that's being happening through my body where I'm just being put in the place of witness and just trusting the next movement without knowing what it's going to be. And it always surprises me. So every time I dance, I, I do my best to try to create and move into those states. But I think that's also a metaphor for how to live moment to moment. The complexity of life at any given moment is, is, is so much. There's so many variables that nobody knows the future. And I think that's a very wise and humble stance to hold that I could be astounded by anything at any moment. Right. So don't pretend, you know, it's too big of a mystery to know what's even going to happen tomorrow. There's patterns that may follow. But, you know, even if we've seen with these collective events with the virus and a lot of other things, if that happens, all the plans go out the window. There's things that might happen next year, whether it be pleasurable or difficult that you just never could have planned for. So we just have to have the state of openness to be able to adapt to them. But this also keeps me excited for life. A lot of us, you know, people can come to a point where they figured it all out. And I think I think we have to keep this space of openness where we can be astounded. Because I, I see kind of just this experience as life is this very huge intelligent art project that is here to wow us. And that this life is a little bit more like, I mean, humans have this innate part of quality of, of drama to them. And you see it in soap operas and in movies. And I think those artistic expressions are, are part of expressions of our psyches and who we are where love is almost lost in some drama or show, you know, and then it's regained. Or, you know, in terms of more of a masculine perspective, there's these hero movies and the hero almost dies and the world almost ends, but then they save it. And so we kind of have this need for these intensities and crises and being gripped. And life is more like watching a really big movie. You know, there's these moments where everything might be lost, but if you work really hard, it might be reclaimed. Or if it's lost, like how do you become a hero when things are lost and still keep this kind of mentality and... You know, challenges I find just never end. They're just the quality of the fabric of our experience, but it's more how we've responded to these challenges. And I think having that sense of play and openness kind of helps us become more adaptable and rejuvenate us in those difficult moments. Yeah, a kind of dynamic tension between chaos and control. Yeah, yeah, I think even the word chaos i think it's chaos from our perspective and i think if we were able to zoom out it's far more well organized you know the last chapter of my book is called strange attractors and it's a point of perspective in systems theory including nonlinear dynamics in mathematics that if you look close locally the system looks chaotic but if you zoom out enough, there's almost a fractal pattern to it. Of course, there's cohesion. And I think there's a cohesion in every moment. It's just that we're not able to see it. For example, you know, a quick symbolism is, you know, Carl Jung had this idea of a collective unconscious. 
but if you move into these kind of our hyper psychedelic states or even through meditation, that collective unconscious seems very conscious. It's more aware than us. It's almost as if there's this global mind or universal mind that's super conscious of everything going on. The same way from the perspective of a cell in our body, I think there's 37 trillion cells. Everything might look chaotic. It's just little cells bumping around, moving into each other, eating their food, you know. But if you zoom out, Oh my God, the coordination and complexity of your body is astounding. Like there's no human mind that could hold that level of complexity of what's happening in our body. I mean, just the cellular level is astounding. And then you move into the organs and how they work together. I mean, if the mind had to keep track of how to pump our heart every moment, I mean, we would all be dead. We'd be missing beats all the time. And so there's a huge aliveness and intelligence to our bodies itself that we couldn't even begin to fathom and put out on paper really to understand it, especially all at once. And that level of cohesion and organization isn't just in our bodies, it's in ecosystems, it's in our planet, in our solar system, I and mean, it's all the way through. And so I think there's, while things seem chaotic, I think we can kind of surrender to a deeper wisdom of, of what's going on. Yeah, I, I forgot about the uh, the negative connotation to that word. I was, <laughs> I was actually thinking of chaos in terms of like the unknown or uh-huh. or the darkness or the underworld or or that notion that you know life would would have no magic if mm. if we knew which bush the rabbit was going to jump out of each time yeah no it's i think one of the biggest things that we've seen in psychedelic experimentations is over the last 20 years there's been work done on what part of the personality changes with psychedelic experiences You know, what psychologists have found out, it's the part of the personality that they have shared is known as openness. These are part of the five, big five psychological traits within humans that people tend to scale how personalities are put together. And openness is correlated with creativity, with intelligence. We think of the opposite of openness. It's closed. There's a rigid system and structure, including belief structure. And I keep new experiences out. But with openness and its increase, we are open to more experiences, including learning. And so it's a very adaptive strategy. And I think something I've gained from continual psychedelic use is that openness to that big M mystery. And I think, and it's it's a sequential order that I think has to be organic because that's scary for a lot of people, right? So a sense of deep expandedness, just being really expansive, is very scary for a system that's designed to be controlling and, you know, in terms of it, it's more closed. And so I think we have to meet humans where they're at and open slowly. And maybe even while we're holding them, think about maybe the metaphor of a flower opening. You don't rush a flower to open. You enjoy the whole process of its opening. The whole process of the flower opening is beauty, you know? And so I know it's very... You can say simplistic, but I I find it to be true that the deep two emotional pulls of the cosmos is fear and love. And every kind of other quality of emotion sits between these. And fear comes from this experience that we're all separate, right? Which is understandable why we we have separate bodies, you know, and a lot of people live this way. So everybody kind of thinks they're alone or have to pity each other. And even death looks very scary from this place of separateness. And love is kind of this experience or realization of deep interconnection and oneness, this this sense of unity, right? And so I think a larger part of this human experience is moving from that sense of closeness and fear and opening and blooming towards the sense of oneness and openness. Yeah, and the ultimate sense of safety that one experiences from that kind of embodied sense of experience. Like, for example, 
you know, at the end of my psychedelic experiences back when I was doing that, I would always ask for something that I could bring back that I would understand or that I, I would be able to remember. And every time I got the exact same message to just relax. <laughs> <laughs> and it took many years for that message and that lesson to really bloom, let's say, to use that flowering metaphor. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's a process for sure. I mean, we have so many ingrained evolutionary parts of us, either from our animal past, the humans are just like our family with our parents and mom, where fear and contraction is ingrained and self-protection and so on. And, and they're adaptive importance parts of us. And so often what I see is people carry around this deep sense of just armor and protection, but they've never learned to take it off. So they have this armor on all the time as they move through the world, even when they're home relaxing or where their loved ones and we need some armor. There's there's places where you walk around the world where you need this protection to be very strong and present. But you also want to be able to take off the armor when needed because it's heavy and it separates you from the world. And so it takes a while for the armor, including I studied somatic psychotherapy for a couple of years. It's, it's deep patterning in the body and, and in the muscle contractions, right? So it takes a while for this to kind of move through. But with that comes a deep sense of safety, openness, relaxation, and what I see in fear and contraction, it really skews our perception of reality. And I think this is something like why something like MDMA is quite a gift because MDMA generally turns the fear parts of our brain off some. And with that off, our heart really opens and we're able to see things more clearly. I think we can't really see things clearly with a closed heart because our essence is love. And so seeing that through that lens, we see everything more clearly from a non-judgmental place. But yeah, it takes a while. And I think it's a forever thing that there's going to be a deeper sense of safety and okayness and one way we see that is in the near of end of life anxiety studies using psilocybin now for two decades, where people are so frozen in fear because they found out that they're going to die within six months to two years, and they're petrified, right? They're, they can't leave their house, they can't connect with family, they can't carry out a sense of purpose and have a meaningful life while they're here because of all the anxiety that's in their system because their termination you know, from their perspective is around the corner. So why do anything? I'm, I'm frozen. And something like psilocybin having these death rebirth experiences help them see that there's nothing to be scared of, that there's a sense of continuation of you're universally held, that you're okay. And they're able to move through that anxiety and enjoy, you know, the time they have left while they're here in this body. Juhan Kamsazade is the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet, an Integral Approach. Terrence McKenna used to love to talk about how human evolution and evolution of consciousness was inextricably intertwined with psychedelics. However, I've also had these same kind of mind and heart opening experiences outside of the experience of psychedelics, where I went into a place where I felt completely and utterly safe and that nothing in this world could harm me in any way at all. Because sometimes I would sink into that kind of space during a situation where I felt threatened, and I would actually have this experience that nothing could harm me, no matter what, even, even to the point of death. And so there's what sounds like to be a hardwired, psychedelic, evolutionary element of psychedelics in our human evolutionary instinctual process 
And yet we also have these experiences outside of the psychedelic experience. And I'm wondering, maybe those are just experiences that are stimulated by that higher level of integrative consciousness that psychedelics embody or imbue. I love that, that you're putting that forward. So something I put to describe in my book, it just came out, The Psilocybin Connection, that really kind of builds off of the work of Terence and Dennis McKenna, who posited that perhaps it was our experimentation and then ritual use of psilocybin mushrooms for maybe three to four million years at the beginning of our species that really catapulted human consciousness to this level of awareness we have now. You know, quick background, we do know now in the last 20 years that psilocybin creates a hyper-connected brain state, increases neuroplasticity, stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons, right? The brain physically begins to grow. And the idea that our ancestors did this over and over and over again epigenetically changed us and gave us the formation of, you know, the growth of our neurocortex and also the ability to have language and form mythologies and the creation of art were all stimulated by these expansive and visionary states, right? And so part of what I try to share in the book that as humans did this over and over and it wired into our neurophysiology, that a lot of these states finally kind of concretized and became more available to us without psychedelics. For example, it's for those of taken us in dose, it could be very visionary, meaning your your body's here in this world and you can see through the senses of eyes and ears, but you're also immersed in this other reality that isn't a part of your environment of you know sight, smell, taste, and touch that could be very complex and, and deeply enriching. And that by doing this over and over, eventually we form this ability to have imagination and visualize a possible future so we can plan or think about our deep past, like our evolutionary history. And so there are states of increasing awareness that became a part of our species that I think, you know, I think as somebody who's, who's vegan but can still safely say that is very different from the rest of the animal kingdom. There's a sense of awareness and an intelligence and I'd say depth in many ways, not to say animals don't have lots of depth, but we were able to contemplate depth across not just us, but across all species. And so there's uh, psychic structures that had formed. And I think a lot of these first came into formation through psychedelic experiences that actually increased and became more available later through other methods like meditation. I've gone in and out of different periods of meditation in my life. There was this time where I was doing an hour a day, then two hours, then three hours, and about like, you know, 100 days in. I had this massive state shift experience where I moved to this threshold where I thought I was going to die. And it seems very real in the moment. I didn't break through that day. Then the next day I went back into the meditation, went through the same space again. I was more ready, let myself relax, broke through a huge orgasmic opening in every cell, deep sense of present in here. I felt I was God embodied into this form. I'm eternal, like all this confidence. Just like, wow. It's just like this threshold and then boom, like beamingness to your being and your sense of attention and presence. And the only thought that really arose was, I've experienced this on psilocybin this exact same state and this just took me hundreds of hours <laughs> you know so but some people might have taken thousands of hours and i think maybe there's a potential to get there a little bit quicker because of my previous experiments with psilocybin you know as we know like that our neuroplasticity and the change in brain states a lot of those pathways in our brain actually stabilize right so that might have happened with our ancestors but now i think with psychedelics with people that use them 
and they have these state changes, and these states have their own level of awareness and insights contained in them, we're able to get there quickly through other methods. You know, so maybe with what you shared, maybe your previous psychedelic experiences that made your, you say, egoic or part of your brain less rigid because it's had to dissolve before, that ability to have those universe insights became more possible. Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel wrote this great book, A Steel and Fire, of how expanded states of consciousness can affect productivity, including in areas of, say, science and business and, and um, sports. And they really kind of break down how developmental psychologists like Robert Keegan have found that people have psychedelic experiences and later went to other methods like martial arts or meditation were able to actually increase their development more quickly, moving from what he calls from self-authoring, which is like this high-level adult consciousness to self-transforming. They're able to renew their identity pretty often. And so a lot of people can have these experiences without psychedelics. I've definitely met quite a few. I'm like, wow, you have a great depth of awareness and haven't used a psychedelic. But it's it's far and few in between. You know, some people have spontaneous religious experiences. They are rare. They do happen. But if we want to create the kind of cultural transformation, I think it's needed more than ever before, not just because of enjoyment of growth, but because of, you know, our crisis is on many levels, ecological and economic and across the spectrum of unnecessary suffering that is happening. We're needing to transform faster. And I've not come close to seeing any other method as quick and as effective uh, as with the use of psychedelics. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that point. It can be a rough ride, but considering the existential crises that we're facing in the world right now, if we're to think in terms of that, yeah, I don't know if we could wait for, especially some of the more entrenched and resistant parts of our species to uh, evolve <laughs> in time. Yeah, totally. I mean, if I'm just taking a very you know, sober and honest look at the other methods of transformation that exist, and I love them all. I love meditation. I mean, our species has had awareness of meditation and yoga practices for thousands of years in the West, you know, probably since the 50s in terms of widespread awareness. And that's been helpful, but come nowhere as close as being as effective because not everybody's, you know, 10% of the population have a deep spiritual practice like that or maybe even less. But people aren't going to take it on, especially in the increasing complexity of society where people are really busy and have so many things they have to do, not just for the sense of even accomplishment, but even as you know, the economic stretches are happening more and more. There's three times more debt than there is money in the world right now. That's the way our financial system works. There's more increasing stress and people have to keep working really hard just to maintain an existence. In the midst of all this, a lot of them, especially if they're taking care of family, aren't going to all of a sudden gather the energy and time to start a meditative practice, right? And that road is slow. I think it's important on a day-to-day -day basis to, to keep a clear level of awareness, but it's slow. Other things like therapy, you know, is another important method costs a lot for a lot of people. And even if you want more quality therapists, costs even more. Also a very slow process. It can be very effective, but it's slow. I mean, I've had clients in psychedelic spaces that they're like, wow, I got more today out of my 20 years of therapy. And I've had experiences I never would have gotten to therapy because therapy mostly uses talking. And a lot of these, whether it's traumas or insights, emerge out of a deeper level, out of more than just verbal consciousness or deeper awareness. For example, a lot of the trauma people carry is nonverbal. It happened in the first three years of life before we learn language. And so there's not even deep memories attached to it. There's just trauma in the body, and we can't access them. Sometimes we can with different somatic therapies. Again, it takes a lot of time and costs a lot. So therapy is a very privileged position not a lot of people can have. You know, another, I think, one that's important is just more knowledge. 
and learning, including all these theories of development and how paradigms move forward and learning about growth. But not everybody's going to sit down and learn that, right? And so if I look at many of these main transformative methods, they're all great, but they can be synergistic with psychedelics. What I've seen is psychedelics awaken the person to have interest in meditation, as we saw that happen in the 60s. A lot, there's a great book called Zigzag Zen, where people had psychedelic experiences and devoted themselves to spiritual practices. A lot of people then go into therapy after psychedelic experiences, or they start getting interested in their consciousness and start learning about transformation. But psychedelics, as I mentioned, the right set and setting we have found through scientific studies for now since the 1960s, that about 67% of the people have a classical mystical experience, meaning classical as they fit the criteria of what mystical experiences, including the steep sense of unity. And there's a correlation if the person has a mystical experiences of that, that they have a higher chance of having more deeper lasting healing, you know? And so that's a pretty high bar. So the whole 67%, you know, 80% success rate with treatment resistant depression, for example, every other method hasn't worked. 80% of the, for those population works in the right set and setting. And it could take a while to set up the right set and setting, but it at least allows a possible way forward, not just for individual transformation, but eventually collective transformation. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking of the pleasure aspect of psychedelic experience, the kind of hormonal brain rewards that we've been hardwired to receive when we engage in this kind of mind-opening inner exploration of consciousness, that we get these hormonal hits of of things like dopamine and serotonin and, and and things like that and and then and then from there it seems that the whole universe starts unfolding in new and unimaginable ways i love that you brought up the topic of pleasure you know first to preface it i think there's a good amount of the population when they think of pleasure they get scared and it's unsafe and it's judged as bad i mean even a lot of people, maybe with a Catholic upbringing, I mean, it's seen, it's, it's kind of, especially if it comes to anything sexual, it's, there's shame around it, it's in judgment. You're not supposed to feel too good. And, and even in Islamic traditions also, you know, my mom was more of a Catholic background from Mexico, my dad from Islamic from Iran. Even there, there's a lot of repression around, say, sexuality, which, you know, I, I did a lot of training in Tantra, a big interest of mine, including their cosmology. And uh, the universe is created through sexual interaction between these two large masculine and feminine beings. But pleasure, including sexual energy, is, I mean, for example, sexual energy created your physical body. It's a union of, of, of a mother and father that create this whole form, right? Sexual energy that even Freud would say, you know, is the formation and the base of our psyche through the libido. I think there's more complexity to it. But I think it's a huge part of our moment-to-moment -moment experience, and it's important to own to feel a sense of wholeness and empowerment. And sexual repression, including pleasure, comes up in maybe half of my clients I work with over a longer period of time. It's huge. It's a deep part, I think, of our spirituality. I want to refer to listening to an article I wrote that just came out last month on Lucid News called Psychedelic Therapists Must Hold Sexual Boundaries. And it came out of response of people crossing sexual boundaries recently in the psychedelic therapy space, and that may continue to increase. For example, in my research, I found about 5% of therapists, period, regular therapists, sleep with the clients over the course of their career. I mean, that's a really high number, and that's likely to transfer over the psychedelic kind of therapy space, whether it's one-to-one -one or group ceremonies and so on, especially with the blurred boundaries, you know, and that deep sense of all people are opening up to their pleasure finally once they feel safe. So there's a lot to happen there. 
But while we're holding those strong boundaries, we also want to be able to hold space for the people's pleasure as they open up. Pleasure helps people feel safe. It opens up their hearts. It rejuvenates them. I mean, if they've been depressed, it's like they've been thirsty and they're finally being able to drink water. As I mentioned, I did a few different Tantra trainings. And I remember the first immersive weekend, uh, very hands-on. And you're kind of trained to keep people in this heightened state of pleasure for hours. And, you know, it was really kind of apparent to me that if God designed a cosmos very intelligently, would he not put or she put the thread to lead them back home in pleasure? You know, like why not have a huge a part of the awakening process? It should be inherently pleasurable. And as I've moved into these at times unitive and expansive states, there's a deep somatic experience of pleasure, very orgasmic and euphoric in my being that in many ways heals a lot of the trauma in the body. Trauma being there's frozen fear and part of us is stuck in the past instead of the present moment. And pleasure seems to reboot the system and wipe it clean and release, you know, in a very cathartic way, a lot of the tension that we're holding. I'm so glad you brought that in because I was I was thinking about that and how to inject that into the conversation and how psychedelics really open those gates that are held in check by our previous experience of trauma and fear that is so heavily reinforced by our culture. Deep. I mean, you know, it sounds silly to say out loud, but it was my experience. Uh, the first time I took MDMA, I was 19. And I was so scared to take MDMA for years because of all the stigma that it rots your brain. It's like there's so many barriers just to enter that space. And so once I finally did, I felt all this deep sexual energy as part of my being. And I realized I'm a sexual being all the time. And there's this like living life force in my body. And it's not like I didn't know we were sexual and, you know, I'd, of course, been masturbating for a long time before 19 and had sexual experiences. But this was something very different that was an innate part of my being all the time. And, again, it was very supportive. It gave confidence. It gave power. It gave security. I mean, it's again, it's a deep part of our wholeness. And as I felt that energy, I felt as if I had been lied to my whole life. I was like, how come nobody told me? That there's this huge part of aspect of my regular experience that is so important and delicious and good. And it had been kept from me. And then I realized it's because they didn't know. I mean, we kind of have such a disembodied relationship to sex, I think, in general in our culture. Like my parents didn't talk to me about it, right? And and I think we didn't have any, you know, in terms of we had like sex ed in class, which is like, I would say not sexy in, in any sort of way, right? But to cultivate the experience that we are sexual beings, not just for safety, but for vitality and having a full life. And so that really awakened me at that age. But what I've seen also in my client work is it happens to a lot of people. Often, again, it's a deep part of the cosmos. Mark Henson, he's an amazing visionary artist. He has this great, I think it's called tantric marriage, but he shows the spiral of evolution of all of human history, you know, starting with cells and then moving into the entire animal kingdom eventually through humans, and they're all having sex. And the entire spiral of energy that's created every species on the planet has moved forward through sex. I mean, it is a deep part of the core since the Big Bang till now of what moves life forward. And so I think we're participating in that flow more fully when we engage with that energy. And a lot of times in these psychedelic experiences, the trauma and relaxations and the social conditioning, especially around shame, relaxes so much that people kind of let that energy force move forward. Again, this is why we need strong boundaries. But it's amazing to see. It's almost, again, like the flower blooming. About one in four people have sexual trauma. 
most of them, a good deal of them, it happens maybe in the first 12 years of life. A lot of times it's a you know family member or uncle or somebody that was close by, and that creates developmental trauma. It stuns them from developing fully and trusting and opening intimacy, and their sexual energy is seen as a threat because their sexual energy at some point created this crossing of boundaries for them. So they either shut down sexually that affects all their relationship and life force. Or some people move the other way of like, well, I'm finally getting attention and it's through sexuality and they become overly sexual to get connection, right? And so a lot of that trauma, because it's not necessarily conscious and it's so ingrained and protected and it's not verbal, it's such a slow process to heal that through regular therapy. And that whole system, because it is somatic, it's in the body and the body can open, really let go of tension in these spaces, a lot of that deep trauma can open and the people move from being in this trauma frozen state to especially you know i see it a lot more with women because they have a lot of times more trauma but definitely also men where they become more sexually empowered and whole and confident and just have more of a more pleasure and satisfaction in their lives and also all of life every aspect of life can be such a, a pleasurable experience like that but again as you you were talking about in the sexual realm in particular we also need to be very sensitive to other people's needs for boundaries and you know to be in touch with our own experience of trauma so that we can sense when somebody else is not in a, a safe place to be approached in that sort of a way. Totally. You know, I think it's uh, <laughs> obviously with a lot of the things happening in culture, including the Me Too movement, that shows where we are. You know, I like to think most people are generally trying to do good. And there's definitely some people that are, you see, more narcissistic than selfish where they're so misattuned to others not caring and they try to just dominate and take. But that's not most of humans. And there's more overall satisfaction in being attuned to others. It creates more connection. It creates more unity. You know, it's like our bodies are like sensitive antennas to other people's bodies. If we drop into especially our own body, we could feel what's going on in theirs. You know, we talked about age almost. He wrote a book a few years ago on arrows, and he really kind of breaks down that, you know, sexual energy is present in every interaction always because it's a deep part of who we are. And out of shame and repression, we close it down. And just because there's sexual energy, that does not mean whatsoever anything needs to happen or be acted on, period. But it creates a sense of presence and interest and aliveness in another human, right? And so it could be a good exchange of energy, meaning it's sexual energy by its nature because it runs through all of life, but it's also having awareness that that's just for you to feel. And it also doesn't need to translate to like sexual thoughts. It's just that there's there's a connection and a preciousness that's happening in this moment that's visceral in the body. And the work that influenced probably the most in this area, I recommend listeners to check up is David Data. He wrote many books on the topic and I think is a very deep kind of yogic and tantric philosopher's intelligence and understands these dynamics maybe better than anybody I've ever come across, especially around the nature of masculine and feminine, and I know that could be a controversial kind of organization of, of saying that because there's a lot of you know non-binary and trans people, but it's coming from the perspective that these are two archetypal forces that are part of nature, right? They exist through the animal kingdom and so on. And there's different ways to move through these archetypes. You know, there's three predominant ways as he shares it. And the first one is the unconscious masculine and unconscious feminine. And these are where the man is generally just dominating, tries to be an alpha, whatever. And the woman's more submissive. This is like the 1950s and all the way back. You know, there's a lot of people still living in the state. The second stage is where the masculine expands to become more feminine and the feminine becomes more masculine. You have this happening in the 1960s. I think psychedelics played a big role in this. 
where men grow out their hair, listen to music, become more soft, more sensitive, and the women move into the workplace and become more empowered and autonomous. And so now they have both sides within them and there's more wholeness. And so again, this is very important, but this can also create many times a sense of sexual neutrality because there's not this polarity. You know, there's not a positive and a negative charge that creates this tension in, in electricity and dynamism. And, and these two poles can exist within anybody. It doesn't matter if it's a male or female body. There's many guys that are more feminine by nature, and a lot of women, by their essences, are more masculine. Maybe about 10% of the population is like that. According to him, 10% is just more neutral, 50-50, and there are about 80% of the population either inherently is more masculine or more feminine, right? So th there's a wide variety. And the third stage is... I've been with the other pole. I've get it. I've done the therapeutic work. I could talk well. I'm not going to try to dominate. I, I'm sensitive and aware of the other person's inner landscape. But there's more power in claiming what you inherently are, just the desire just to be more yourself and that we can give more to the world. And so you have the rise of more of a divine masculine and divine feminine. And the whole point is moving into deeper kind of unity through this polarity. You know, and we can have more strength of mission and purpose and bring in beauty. You know, you're, the woman is inhabiting more of this goddess essence in their archetypal you know, sense. And a lot of times there's this experience as psychedelics of coming in contact with deities and these large universal powers that, that you have access to. You can empower and move through them in your daily life. And same with the masculine, whether it's a warrior archetype or a king archetype. There's ways that the, the self-esteem period can be meant, but then... With the kingdom archetype, for example, there's a good book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, Archetypes, Divine Masculinity. It came out a few decades ago. And those archetypes are also in feminine versions were for the king, which, for example, once you do move into it, it's just like the whole world's your kingdom and you're, you're, it's your job to care for all of it. And with the warrior part, it's your job to fight for all of it. And you're also a lover for all of it in terms of the lover. And the magician is either the creative role, including like scientists, but it's also the role of the, you would say, like the shamanic role. You know, it's the magician, the person that plays with magic. And so we each have these archetypes in us. And that ability, I think, to access archetypes is more available with this kind of a deep, you know, psychedelic work. But we all have all of those archetypes within us just to different degrees. And don't we want to embody them all and integrate them all into our experience so that we can interact and relate to everyone else with their own embodied iterations of all of that totally yeah i think for me my general orientation is towards wholeness with wholeness there's the sense of integrating more and more you know i think that's a, what the integral model shows but it's also what psychology shows it's just a sense that you know in the large sense we are everything right and so much of life and developing is integrating all these parts and making it cohesive within our system in a very holistic way meaning that we're a system that is deeply interconnected and as we integrate more and more, and even though we have all these archetypes, the individual nature of the archetypes themselves, I think, is, is nice to see very also individually. Just as you kind of keep spanning and dissolving into the all, the universe worked really hard to create you as an individual. And you have very specific gifts to bring this world that nobody else does. I remember learning in a psychedelic journey how, I mean, the, the small statement was that individuality is key, that the more you really self-actualize and become your individual self, the more you actually feel connected to everything and your particular gift that the universe is trying to bring into the world through your incarnation is coming through you specifically, right? So we don't want to lose individuality. And as we don't want to lose as individuals, I think it's also very similar for archetypes to get to know them, whether they're psychological archetypes, astrological archetypes, you know, the tarot, for example, it's nice to know each piece is its own. And from the sense of archetypal awareness, every moment 
might do better by being called a, a very specific archetype instead of trying to embody them all at any moment. It's more having awareness of this huge plethora of all the gods available and letting them move through you of what's being called for at any moment. So there's times where it's a very appropriate to be the warrior archetype, right? Like that's the call that you're needing, whether it's working out or athletics or there's a way that you need this level of attentive awareness that's very crucial to embody at that very split second. And there's times that's just so not appropriate. You know, that's something more like the lover that's deeply attuned and soft and gentle and tender is there and aware, you know, or if you need to make executive decisions, you know, you can move into the king archetype, you know, or if you're in a very creative space, you know, you can call on the magician. So it's nice to have the awareness of these different parts and the flexibility within your being and identity to also allow these changes, like sense of the opposite of rigidness. That's the ability to call forth these different, say, powers or constellations of what's appropriate and needed in each instant. Mm, yeah, that was so beautiful. I love that. And yes, psychedelics have this magical way of making all of that available to us on a conscious level. Totally. I mean, in transparency, I mean, there's so many things I've shared in this talk that I don't know if I would have believed Myself, if it wasn't for psychedelics, for at least 20 years, I was a very vicious reader and come, and I think psychedelics really helped with that. And I can learn a lot of information, but it's different than having the experience because without the experience, it's just very kind of abstract. And so whether it's this sense of unity or God or archetypes, I don't know if I would have bought into it completely if I didn't have the actual psychedelic experiences or if I did, it wouldn't have been as visceral. Right. With psychedelics, I mean, there's times where appropriate high doses, like 500 micrograms of LSD and like a deity being will just enter your room. Right. This should not be possible in my current paradigm. Right. This is completely wow. And there's a sense of a deep sense of presence and power and awareness and wisdom to these beings. I don't think I would have believed that if somebody told me, but I had to have that experience. Same with God. I was an atheist. Right. Like I, I wouldn't have had that. And so this entire realm of life for me was only made possible through these substances. Mm -hmm. How can people find out more about your work if they want to further explore this kind of yeah. experience in a guided way? Yeah, deeply uh, appreciative. First, my book, you know, it just came out this last month. It was like five years of work. It's definitely probably the most comprehensive on the topic of psilocybin. So, you can find that on all the platforms. It's called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution on the Planet, an Integral Approach. And then actually today, the audiobook version came out, and I'm very, very happy with it. We held auditions in North Atlantic Books for the narrator, picked Nathan Agaton, and he was by far the best narrator. So I was very happy. He was a Shakespearean actor and keeps a great tempo throughout the book. And so that's also available on all platforms with the exception right now on Audible, but it'll be on Audible in the near future. My website's psychedelicevolution.org. And if you want to experience psilocybin, you can check out my site. There's podcasts and a lot more information in my contact. But also Otman Retreats in Jamaica is amazing. I've been working with them for several years. OtmanRetreats.com and hold really high quality psilocybin ceremony experiences on this private resort, like on the beach. All meals are included. We do ratings and checkings with every client that's come through, and we have a solid like nine out of 10 in terms of satisfaction there. Sounds great. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you mm -hmm. again. 
It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Your background really stands out and it really shows itself through on your comments and your questions. So it's a deep appreciation and pleasure to be here with you. Again, thank you so much for being on the Magical Mystery Tour and be well. You too. Farewell, everybody. That was Juhan Kamsazadeh. He's trained in the Mazatec mushroom tradition. He facilitates legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies in Jamaica and educates people to develop a relationship with sacred mushrooms. And he's the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution on the Planet, An Integral Approach. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>